You're listening to the Church Boys Free Fall Q&A. It's Billy Hollowell here with the Church Boys Podcast, and I'm excited to have author and screenwriter Andrew Clavin on. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Billy. It's good to talk to you. It's good to talk with you. So, gosh, I, we have not talked in a long time, and there are about a million things that I want to ask you about. And I've got to start... I've got to start with Trump in November, and obviously it's February now. How are how are you feeling about things in America these past few months? Uh, remarkably good. I mean, I was not a Trump supporter during the primaries at all. I was very put off by him, and I voted for him really as because the, I thought the person he was running against was a corrupt leftist who would basically put an end to the American experiment. So it was a uh, it was a protest vote more than a vote for Trump, vote against Hillary more than a vote for Trump. Then I was totally taken aback. Um, I think his appointments have been great. I think the uh, appointment to the Supreme Court has been spectacular. Uh, I like the, some of the executive orders limiting regulations, and uh, I like the appointments of guys to uh, agencies who are suspicious of those agencies. I think we need that. He's really taken a cut at the bureaucratic state. So I've been really pleased. I think there's this weird disparity going on, at least in my mind. It's a three-way disparity. One is the fact that Trump says a lot of things that his administration doesn't seem to support. You know, so he'll, you know, he'll, he'll say nice things about Putin, and then Mike Pence will go over to Europe and say, we're going to hold Russia responsible. Right. You know, so th- that's the one thing. Then on the other hand, there is the media, which has beclowned itself. Uh, the, the news media has just made themselves look utterly ridiculous with their hysteria and it's all a Russian plot and anonymous sources and leaks and all this stuff that just do not are not borne out by anything yet approaching the facts. So there's that, th- those two sides. And then in the middle is this administration that's really <laughs> being run quite well. And um, and so I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm worried, but I'm hopeful. Well, and that's, you know, the thing that just shocks me still, because I look back and I think, all right, well, you had all these options for Republicans. And I still I, I'm kind of exactly where you where you just described. It's like I, there's no way he would have been my number one choice out of all those people I could have chosen from. And I can't quite even amongst and I'm going to get myself in trouble. But some of my friends who loved him from the start, from day one, even some very strong evangelical friends that I have who are like, no, he's the real deal. I, I'm still not there. I still don't understand that. But, you know, here we are. I think it's an interesting time. And what, and what you mentioned about the media is really fascinating because you, and I do think, and you can feel free to disagree, I think there's some, I don't want to use the word danger because I don't want to sound like the media, but, you know, there, I don't like the whole you're all fake, you're all whatever. I do think, you know, there's clearly a huge media problem here. We have a huge bias problem. It's been around for decades, but I'm kind of fascinated to see where this shakes out because the two sides are really digging their heels in here. Um, and, and I agree, the media have just blown this so far out of proportion. So I'm not defending them, but it, but I do, I do wonder if he is doing himself a little bit of a disservice and that he could actually speak to the issue in a more pointed way if he toned, toned it back a little bit and got a little more specific about what's exactly wrong with the press. Well- well, that's always true with Trump, that he needs more specificity and to dial it back a little. But on the other hand, I think they deserve every slap they get. I do not <laughs> think he is anywhere far off. And you just have to remember, the First Amendment applies to the president, too. He has the right to say anything he wants, and he has the right to defend himself against very, very unfair attacks. And all I would say is the minute 
he steps over that line and does anything that restricts the press the way Obama did. Obama tapped phones yeah. and subpoenaed phone records and, uh, you know, declined um, Freedom of Information Act requests. When he starts to do that, then I will oppose him on the on First Amendment grounds. As long as he is just smacking these guys around, they so have earned it. This has been 16 years of unfair reports on George W. Bush, blaming him for a hurricane, you know, you know blaming him for everything that went wrong, and and an absolute blindness to the corruption, the ideological corruption of the Obama administration. I, I mean, the way they covered Obama was an embarrassment. They lost, that's where they lost all their yes. credibility. They sold it all to protect him. And now they've got no defense. You know, when you knock down all the rules, when, you know, when Trump rounds on you and comes after you, what, where are the rules to protect you? You can't say, well, we did the same thing to Obama because they just did not. Yeah, that's and that's a great point. I mean, where were these people when that was happening. And I find it fascinating. You watch these reporters, they act like, A, he's shutting down newsrooms. I mean, they act like he's gone out. And that's just, it's not accurate. Yeah, but but B, they're acting like this is the first time someone's questioned them. If you look at polling, and you know this, I mean, you go all the way back a couple of decades, you know, people were already questioning the media. They were saying they didn't trust the media. That's gotten far worse. Last year, Gallup told us that you know, basically nobody trusts the press. I think um, the only people who ranked lower were big businesses in Congress in, in the Gallup poll last year. So it's um, it's a fascinating time. But I want to I actually want to get into more important things. Not that Trump isn't important, uh, yeah. but your book, The Great um, Good Thing. I want to get into this because we didn't get a chance to talk back in September about this. Um, and I just I think your story is fascinating. I had a chance to hear you speak on it recently. And I guess before we dive into your personal story, I wanted to ask you, as a Christian and as somebody who's obviously pretty embedded in, in culture and seeing what's going on, what is what is the most concerning thing to you when you look at the landscape of what we're seeing happen culturally right now? I think the most the thing that concerns me most is that people are not do not remember where we come from. I don't. You know, I don't insist, of course, on everybody believing what I believe or having my same religion, but we have lost the bottom block of the tower, which comes it comes out of Jerusalem and it comes out of Athens. And they're no longer being taught the structure of the West, the thing that makes us think what we think. You know, people are just have just become so ignorant. And you can go through an entire uh, college education and come away without knowing what Plato said, without knowing who Jesus was, without knowing what's in the Bible uh, that made us think the things that we think. And I find this so distressing because they, they talk about, Obama always used to talk about who we are, you know, who we are. And I used to think we're not anybody. We're all different. It's just that we have some shared ideas. And these ideas are thousands of years old. They develop step by step by logical step. And to not teach them to people means that when some con man comes along with a line like Obama had and sells them on just being nice or sells them on not being offensive or don't hurt people if they're different from you, they think that that's who we are. That's what we believe. And they have not got the basic uh, uh, structure of, of liberty, the basic structure of rule of law, the basic structure of Western philosophy to support them. It's very, very distressing to me to see kids at college campuses shutting down speakers because they have to go off and, and suck their thumbs in their <laughs> safe spaces because they've been triggered or whatever, because they do not understand what's at stake and how quickly 
freedom can disappear. Yeah, I mean, you've got you had colleges hosting Plato parties and everything else after the election. I mean, it's bizarre. I will tell you, I have had a number of students. We've talked about, you know, we've had debates in, in a class that I teach. Um, and I had a couple of students not know what a nativity scene was. You know, we're having a discussion about nativity scenes on courthouse lawns, and they're telling me, well, what's a nativity scene? And I'm having yeah. to explain this, and I'm thinking, there's no way that this is a real question. But it is. I mean, they're, <laughs> oh, it, they oh, have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> so. In fact, I think we should distinguish that when I said Plato, I meant the philosopher. When you said Plato, <laughs> you meant the <laughs> <laughs> The actual children's Plato. Um, it's, it's so funny. Yeah. But, um, um, but, 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 you know, this is, this is one of the reasons I, I get knocked a lot by, uh, fellow Christians for not taking a hard line on questions of sexuality, uh, not, not just gay and straight or anything like that, but just basically feeling that, you know, go, go to God first and God will guide you there. It's not my job to tell you what to do. And people get angry at me for that. But you know what? I think we have to get back to the very, very basics of what we believe, you know, and it's not, it's really not all about that. It's all about a way of facing life and of, of looking at yourself that has, that goes beyond this, this physical moment and this, the physical desires and what that philosophy is. I think we need to relearn that. No, I think that's a great point. I mean, if you're going to people and saying, you know, oh, you, you shouldn't be gay or you shouldn't do this, and that's your first point of contact, that's a mistake. I mean, you're not, you have to present the gospel to people and allow them to then have, figure that out once they have that relationship and, and feel convicted if that's what you believe in and whatever. So, yeah, I think that's an important point. And I, and I think too often Christians have approached everything from that perspective of, you know, attack the sin first, go after what they think people are doing wrong first. Instead of, okay, we'll build this meaningful relationship, discover who Christ is, and and then move forward from there. Like, that should be the starting point, right? Yeah, because I think they they don't realize how far we've fallen. You know, it, it's not, it's not the behaviors that bother me. It's the fact that nobody knows anything. You can't, you have, we have no common grounds of communication. Yeah. And, and I think that's the troubling part. And, and you, and you raise a good point there of where, where does this all come from? And even understanding why do people have opposition to certain issues? Why do Christians believe certain things? There's a lack of understanding of where that basis even is. And that, and that is incredibly problematic because in colleges, for instance, that's where people should be learning about. You don't have to agree with it, but understanding and learning why people believe what they believe across the board, I think, is a, is not a bad thing. I don't know why we, we've allowed that to become so restricted to only one, one side of the spectrum. Well, I think it's been done on purpose to a large degree. I really do think that the left has purposely set out to undermine the Western culture. Remember, you know, you can remember Jesse Jackson leading crowds shouting, uh, hey, ho, Western Civ has got to go. Uh, they were serious and they've uh, made great inroads. And I think it's where it's why I always feel that we have to address the culture even before we address, address some political emergency that we feel we have. The first thing we need to do is remind especially young people, but everybody, who we are and why we believe what we believe. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, all right, I want to talk about your story, how you came to faith. I think it's fascinating. I love talking to people about sort of their moment, their journey, how they discover Christ. So you wrote this book, The Great Good Thing, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ. It came out last fall. Why did you write the book? Let's start there. Excellent question, because uh, I'm a fiction writer and I like to hide behind fiction and uh, I'm not a person who likes to expose myself very much. But it occurred to me, you know, when I subtitled it, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ, I was trying to point out that I came a long way. 
secular Jew is about as far from religious Christian believer as you can get philosophically. And it occurred to me, especially as I would talk to people about what had happened to me, it occurred to me that everybody is living right now very far away from faith. The default idea among, especially among sophisticated people, especially among uh, what they sometimes call thought leaders, is the default idea is every sane, smart, sophisticated person is an atheist. If you're not an atheist, there's something weird about you. And if you're a Christian, you must be a rube. You know, if you're a Christian, you must be one of those strange people who comes from those flyover states out there. And I think that that has a very, very powerful effect on what people think, even before they know what they think. I I constantly hear very intelligent men like the science writer Steven Pinker, uh, Sam Harris, the atheist guy. Uh, One of my favorite writers was Christopher Hitchens. I loved his prose. I frequently hear when they start speaking about religion that they're saying stuff that doesn't make any sense, that 15 seconds of logical thought destroys their arguments. And yet, and yet, because they're protected by this default narrative of atheism, they say what they say and believe what they say without really following the thought through to the end. And and so I wanted to show how just by being the kind of person who is obsessively, who is obsessed with the idea that my ideas should make sense. This was true of me as a little kid, as I tell in the book, as a little kid, I always thought even my daydreams had to make sense, you know, and just by having that one superpower, if you will, I found my way to Christ. And so the point that I'm trying to make is that that this narrative that we're all surrounded by, that we're all carried along by as if it were some kind of tide is actually incorrect. It's actually wrong. And just a little bit of independent thought, a little bit of logic, and a little bit of information will lead you to certain conclusions that will, at at the very least, make Christianity seem very, very plausible. Yeah, and and it's it's fascinating to me. I always like to ask people, you know, what was the, and not everybody has, like, the final moment that convinced them to believe, but I want to ask you, I want to throw it out there, you know, was there a final moment for you? And if there was, sort of take me through what it was even that last thought that just convinced you to say, oh my gosh, th- this is true. Christianity is you, true. You know, I didn't have a road to Damascus moment because the entire thing took, because because the narrative was so powerful, the entire thing took 35 years. I mean, it really was, I, I after my bar mitzvah at 13, I basically threw religion away forever. And, and by the time I was baptized, I was uh, just about 50. So, so it was really quite a long journey, but there were these kind of stations of the cross moments when, when things shifted. And, and one of them was after, after many, many years of accepting the narrative that was the overweening narrative when I was a kid, which was relativism, that you have your opinions about what's right and wrong, and I have my opinions, and it's bigoted to say that that culture is worse than your culture, and it's bigoted to say that this religion is wrong and your religion is right. After years of listening to that, it suddenly started to occur to me that that really didn't make any sense, that if you could say at the very extremes, if you could say that a Nazi torturing a child was morally worse than a priest giving a beggar bread. I mean, if you could make that little leap of faith, then you got to God because you cannot have those, that moral, those moral edges unless there is a moral center toward which they're moving. You know, I mean, if something is morally better than something else, it's because it's closer to the moral good. And so that, that had started to occur to me. And one night, uh, and now, uh, you know, I'm in my I'm middle age at this point, I'm 45 or so I'm, I'm reading, I was reading a book in bed 
and it had a, a hero that I really admired. These were these sea stories by Patrick, uh, oh, O'Con- Patrick o- O'Connor, I, I think. I, I, his name slips my mind for a minute, but they're called the Aubrey Maturin series. And um, one of the characters went to bed, and as he was falling asleep, he said a prayer. And I said to myself, well, if he can say a prayer, then I can say a prayer. And I said this three-word prayer, which was, thank you, God, because I had come through a lot of storms. I'd come through a lot of troubles, uh, psychological troubles, and uh, my career was going well, and my marriage was great, and my kids were great. And I said, thank you, God, and I went to sleep. And I woke up the next morning, and the entire world had changed. You know, my perspective on the world had changed, and suddenly everything was very clear, everything was very beautiful, my emotions were apparent to me in ways they hadn't been. I called it, I called it the joy of my joy because I realized I had been happy up until that moment, but I hadn't really felt my happiness. You know, I hadn't experienced my happiness and suddenly I did. And I realized I had connected with something real. And for that, from that moment on, I started to pray every day and I developed a relationship and you cannot develop a relationship with somebody who's not there, you know? So that relationship deepened and grew richer and richer. It took about five years And after five years, I saw that my life had changed massively for the better. And and when I say that, I don't mean, oh, I hit the lottery or my career was going. In five years, bad and good things happen. Tragedies happen and and triumphs happen. But always, my life was getting better. My relationship to life was getting better. And at that point, after five years, I said to God, you know, I said again, thank you. What can I do for you, you know? And, and it seems such a stupid question because he's God and I'm, you know, the schmo who's wandering around. And almost immediately I, I heard almost as if it were a voice. I won't quite say it was a voice because it wasn't out loud, but the words were perfectly formed in my mind. You should be baptized. And, and that is the starting point of my book, because at that point I was like, what? You know, baptized? Are you nuts? Are you kidding me? You know, because that, that was the furthest thing from my mind. You know, I was not where I wanted to go at all. And it created a lot of career problems for me. It created problems with my family. It created all kinds of problems. So I wanted to make sure I was right. And that's when I began to go over my life. Almost as you would go over somebody else's life, like reading a biography and check how I got to the, you know, how did I get to that place? And to make sure it was all logical. And that's kind of what I write down in the memoir. I love that. No, and that, that is, and that was one of my other questions, you know, you spent the bulk majority of your life, not as a Christian. And now you have been for what, a little over a decade now. Yeah. So 12 years, I think. Yeah. So what, what's fascinating to me is sort of the before and the after. And, and you, you spoke to this a little bit, you know, with your career saying that, you know, career problems. I mean, was there, Were there a lot of sacrifices for you and have you been able to find that equilibrium? Because having that worldview in the world, the work world that you live in, um, it's it's a strange dichotomy, I think. Well, you know, my I've I've always wanted to do one thing, which is write prose. That is the thing that I love to do. And for that job to have any meaning at all, to not be this kind of egotistical, solipsistic thing that you do just for yourself, you have to be very dedicated to the idea of the truth. So if I wake up and I get to write prose and it's the truth and I can you know, put bread in my mouth and have a roof over my head, I'm a pretty happy camper, you know, <laughs> but it, it did make certain things more difficult. I mean, I, you know, I, I was working a lot in Hollywood and I think some of my conservative politics probably uh, hurt my Hollywood career there more than my my Christian ideas. But I will tell you, it's very important to say this about myself. I don't like Christian fiction. 
One of the, one of the things when I was wrestling with God over this issue of being baptized, one of the things I kept praying to him was, please, God, don't turn me into a Christian writer. You know, <laughs> what I what I meant by that is like, I'm a crime writer. I write about, you know, bad guys and, and gangsters and prostitutes and, and, you know, people who shoot each other and murder and all this stuff. And I love those stories. I love reading them. I love writing them. And I didn't want to suddenly wake up one day and find myself writing about, you know, oh, a little girl lost her bunny, but Jesus brought it back again. And the reason I didn't <laughs> want to write about that is because God is not the God of Candyland. He's the right. God of the real world, you know. And and so I was I was quite worried about that. And, and there have been moments when I've actually wrestled with it because, you know, my characters say things, use words, do things that I would never do. You know? Right, right. I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a, a very devoted uh, family man and husband and, you know, uh, but I write about guys who do a lot of bad things and say a lot of bad things. And, and that's just my take on the world, on this corrupt world. So the thing that frightened me most was the idea that I would lose my sense of reality. And one of the most gratifying things about it is that I have found that instead my sense of reality has deepened and become richer. And I, the problems that I've had to solve have all been, have all been about how to get that richness and that new depth into my work. As for, as for Hollywood, it is true that, uh, you know, it's been a lot tougher for me since I've become just so open about my politics and my religion. It's been tougher, but you know, I, I can sacrifice that easily as long as I get to wake up and write prose that seems to me to be at least looking for the truth. Yeah, and I think you know we need people. One of the problems is that Christians, I think we've kind of retreated because of the way we've been treated and the way that we perceive media and Hollywood and everything. And so it's sometimes, in my mind, is problematic when we complain if we don't have a presence. So I think it's actually good that not everybody just retreats from what they were doing and goes into the Christian world only, right? Um, because then we don't Very have a presence. So. Yeah. Then we don't have a presence at all. So um, I love it. And so the last thing I'm going to ask you about, and I have to have you back again because there's a million other things I want to talk with you about, but what is your advice to people who might be questioning, maybe they're they're listening and they're kind of thinking like, I just don't know. I don't know if I can believe this. I don't know if I can embrace it. Um, what's your What's your message to those people who maybe are where you were maybe 15, 20 years ago? Well, that, that's a great question. And if I had to start with one thing, I think I would start with prayer. And the reason is, is that prayers actually get answered. And, uh, you know, when I started praying, I didn't know how to pray. I didn't have like a list of prayers. I didn't say the Lord's Prayer. I didn't have like Psalms. I was doing it. You know, it was just like, basically, hi, it's me, you know, <laughs> this, is, this is what's going on. You know, what, what am I supposed to make of this? What am I supposed to make of this? And and I, I found that answers float, I mean, in, in amazing, amazing ways. I mean, ways that I wouldn't even tell people because they seem too magical and crazy, you know, and, and yet always true, always right, always leading me on in a, in a specific way. And what I always tell people about this is take, you know, 10 to 15 minutes a day, get off by yourself and pray out loud. And the reason I say that is when you pray out loud, you finish your sentences. You know, you don't sort of say weird little half things in your <laughs> head that don't really, you know, come back. You actually pray, when you pray out loud, you finish your sentences, you complete your thoughts so that you know what you're talking about. And when you get answers, you know what they, those are answers to. I, you know, I, I tell you, I, I am almost certain this is true for everybody. If you do that every day for 60 days, you'll know, you'll know where you're supposed to go next. And, and I just think I would rather people, you know, I had a friend once say to me, like, 
I, I really want to believe, but I can't accept the Trinity. <laughs> I, I cracked <laughs> up and I thought the Trinity, you know, like, like, you know, you wait, wait, you know, let's start with God. Let's start with the fact that you're not alone, that, you know, that life is not, you're not a meat puppet. Uh, you're not here to vanish and, and die that your, your flesh is speaking a language of the, is, is the language in which the spirit speaks. You know, start with that idea and talk to God about it and see where it gets you. And so I, I always start with the simplest thing. And that seems to me the simplest thing, get the people out of the way, get the church out of the way. I, I mean, I think the Bible is a great help, but I would even say, start with, you don't even have to start with the Bible. Just start in, in a conversation with God that is real and sustained and see where that gets you. I love it. This has been great. And we're going to make sure we link out to the great good thing. And you got to promise to come back. Oh, I'd love to come back. Billy. I always enjoy talking to you. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Thanks a lot. Church Bowl.